Yes, I know it's early, but to think this morning, I know I'm bordering on inappropriate, maybe abuse level, but I want you to think this morning, engage your minds into gear. Um, when you launch a series in an historical book of the Bible like Nehemiah, you can't possibly understand the book if you don't understand the times. So I'm going to do my very best to try to make it interesting to you, but you're going to have to do your best to try to be interested. There is a relationship that you and I have, by the way. You know that, right? So when you're listening to what I'm going to be presenting to you and we get into some of the history, I think it'll be somewhat painless. Um, I love history. It gets me excited. I spent half my week trying to understand the historical context of this book. It's very, very difficult because there's lots of books in the Bible that all jumble into this time frame. But I'm going to try to get it to you as clearly as I can. I would encourage you, even if you're not accustomed to doing so, to maybe take notes this morning. You're going to learn a lot this morning, or at least be reminded of a lot that's going to help it make sense as we work our way through the book of Nehemiah. So here you go. Ready? It's 445 B.C. Long time ago. And you, you just walked into the city of Jerusalem. You see, the temple of God has been rebuilt. That's where you're heading. You're heading to worship. You're bringing your offering. But all around you, as you walk into the city, all around you, you see piles of stone, piles of rubbish. You see blackened gates. You see leveled homes. Everywhere you look, there's debris. There's evidence of being conquered. But the temple is done. The temple is completed. People are going there. People are worshiping. But every step you take toward the temple, every single step, instead of increasing your joy of worship, listen, it's only deepening your despair. You see, Jerusalem in 445 B.C. was a city of humiliation and reproach. The laughingstock of the nations all around them. They were a conquered people. Now shift four months walk northeast. If you're going to walk the distance, it's going to take you four months. Above Jerusalem, over to the east, into the land of Persia, and all of a sudden, the scene refocuses on a man named Nehemiah. And Nehemiah hears the news of the condition of Jerusalem. And listen, verse 4 says, He sat down weeping and mourning for days. Does that not strike you as odd? I mean, what can Nehemiah do about this anyways? I told you he's four months of a walk, of a journey, straight up into the east, northeast of Jerusalem. I mean, he's so far away. He's living in Persia. He's got a great job, a very secure job. His CEO was the most powerful man in the world. It's the king of Persia. It's what could he do anyways? Why is he so bothered by the news of Jerusalem? That's the question that we're going to reflect on beginning today and into next week. So let me ask you right at the very beginning of this series. I'm going to ask you a question that I want you to, to 
wrestle with a little bit this morning. You're actually you're going to be wrestling with this all this entire series. Are the walls are the walls in your life in ruin? Now, I know what it's like when a pastor asks you a question. Unless the spirit of God is aiding it, they sort of bounce around and out. And that's how it works with me. So let me camp on this a little bit. Are the walls of your life in ruin? Now, I'm going to describe to you what I mean by walls, but let me, let me sort of tenderly get you there. God knows what your walls are like in your lives. He says in Isaiah 49, 16, Behold, I have engraved you, brother and sister. Listen, if you're a Christian, you've been engraved on the palms of God's hand. You know when you write yourself a note on your hand, you're doing it so that you can constantly remember and not forget. God says, I've engraved you on the palms of my hand, and your walls, your walls are continually before me. So God's constantly looking at our walls. So I don't think it's really unfair that I'm getting you to look at your walls. Are the walls of your life in ruin? And I'm not referring to, you know, those walls that we're kind of familiar with, those walls that sort of prevent relationship, you know, those walls that, that don't allow you to be transparent, don't allow you to be honest, those walls that actually push people away and prevent people from getting close to you. Those are the walls I'm always dealing with in counseling. Those are walls I struggle with. I'm pretty sure most of us do. But I mean walls not made by brick and mortar. God's not really looking at the walls of your house. He's looking at the walls around your heart, around your life, your discipline, your integrity, your holiness, your faith, your self-control. These are the walls that are, God, that are constantly before God. Did you know that scripture refers to walls this way? It says in Proverbs 25, a man without self-control is like a city broken into and left without walls. If your walls are in ruin, friends, brothers and sisters, men and women, then your life is going to be marked by lack of self-control. Meaning your enemy will find many, many ways into your heart to wreak its destruction. And maybe if you're honest, maybe, maybe that's you to some degree. Maybe your walls are in ruin from neglect. Let me kind of walk you through how that happens. It starts slowly. Get those vines in your life that overgrow. I had one lady years ago whose son teenager was dating and he was always up in the upper floor of the room behind a closed door and I said to her don't you think that's a little dangerous to let them up there all the time and you're not there you're not checking in closed door I trust my son pastor Tim there's nothing to worry about until months later, we find out that they're engaged in premarital sex up there. 
Listen, they start as vines when your walls become ruinous. They start as vines and overgrow. You just sort of lack attention to it. Yeah, I see the vines. They're not that big of a deal. But all of a sudden, cracks begin to appear and pieces break off and holes start to occur and start to show up. And all of a sudden, temptation comes pouring right through them. You know how it works. Some of us used to have a really raging passion for God. I mean, we would go into God's word in the morning. We would not begin our day without time with God. You just didn't feel right if you didn't spend time with God. God was your Lord. He was your friend. Prayer was, can I say it like this? Kind of like dating God. Very intimate, back and forth, conversation. That's how you were. But over time, you've drifted. Now listen, some of us, I know I'm, I'm speaking to you. Let's just be honest. Your walls are before God. You've drifted. Worship's not as important as it once was. Church is kind of optional. The things of the world are increasing their pull on you. You're a little worried in the periphery of your mind, but not so worried that you're ready to do something. And the Holy Spirit, well, He's warning you. That's His job. When you feel guilt... That's the voice of God saying, hey, move away from that and come back to me. You're forfeiting grace that could have been yours, is what the Spirit of God's saying. That's what guilt does. It moves you back to God. But you can shut off the voice of guilt. You can deaden your conscience. You can harden your heart. You can make excuses. You can promise God tomorrow that you'll change. And all the while, sin is great, getting a greater hold in your life and it's sowing its seeds deep in your heart. And things you never imagined that you would do, you all of a sudden find yourself doing and alarm bells are ringing like klaxons and all of a sudden, deep in your soul, you find yourself unable to respond to God. That's how walls fall. And you wake up and you see yourself in financial ruin. How did I get into this house that I cannot afford? And how did I get into debt that is enslaving me? And why can I barely keep my nose above the water of finances? How did I get to this full-blown affair? How can I possibly have arrived at addiction to pornography? How can I be drinking alcohol to where it now has a hold over me? All of these are ruinous walls that began when the vines appeared and we did nothing about it. Friends, walls guard our hearts. They maintain our love for God. And if they're not tended, we're going to find the enemy in our midst. All right, so let me take a brief time out. Now that I've given you the most depressing beginning of any sermon series ever, if trophies were given, I've got one on my shelf, I know. And I already, I'm, listen, I'm getting the trophies. So I'm just going to keep going, okay? Let's focus in at Cornerstone. Remember, just keep remembering you love me. Okay? These are sweet words from a loving friend. Let's focus in at Cornerstone and not really so much in the walls of our church. Let's look outside of our church. Don't you see broken walls around us in the east end of the Lehigh Valley? I mean, listen, I'm just going to be honest with you, and you can get onto Google and search this. I did. Our 
our area ranks higher on national averages in the area of prostitution. Did you know that? We have more prostitution happening in Easton. And in the east end of the Lehigh Valley, it's creeping out. Then on the national average, we've got a higher national average of gang activity. We've got a much, much higher national average of broken homes, meaning homes where the father has left and abandoned and single moms are leading. Crime is higher in Easton than on a national average. Listen, Easton is called the gateway to New York City, not because of the commuter traffic on routes 22 and 78. It's because of the drug traffic. The rubble of broken walls is all around us. And my question is, where's all the churches? Why are churches in Easton and Nazareth and Bethlehem pulling up their roots, either closing their doors and merging? They're heading to the suburbs. That's where churches are heading. At least 10 churches in the last seven years from Easton have moved to the suburbs. They don't want the city. The money's in the suburbs and the comfort's in the suburbs. Yet the Bible tells us something a little bit different, church. It says this, Proverbs 11, when it goes well with the righteous, the city rejoices. It's by the blessing of the upright, a city is exalted. If the Christians are in the cities and exalting Christ in the cities, the city's not going to be blessed. And we've taken that pretty seriously at Cornerstone. We've developed our entire mission and our entire vision around the east end of the Lehigh Valley. Listen, you want to know what a vision is. It's puzzling language. Every company and organization has got a different definition. Let me give you what I think is the most helpfully simple one. The vision is simply this. It's the picture that forms in your mind when you understand what God wants you to do. What does God want Cornerstone to do? What picture forms in your mind? Well, that's your vision. Here's our vision. It's to rebuild a spiritual wall around the east end of the Lehigh Valley. Banger down to Regalsville, east end of Bethlehem, over to Peaburg, Stewartsville. That's the wall that we have identified, the spiritual wall that we're trying to rebuild. Well, how do you accomplish the vision? Well, that's your mission. The mission is what you've got to do if the vision's going to be a reality. That's simple language. Well, the mission of Cornerstone is this. It's to build strong followers of Jesus Christ through his word as we follow him into our community. That's what we've got to do. But how do you do that? It's one thing to have a mission statement, but how does it work? What's going to make it operate? Well, we've identified three things. If we're going to see that mission become a verb, one that is action, that's accomplishing the vision, then we've got to develop leaders in this church. I'm calling out to you, we've got to develop leaders in this church. We've got to mobilize laborers. There really ought not to be any person sitting in this pew this morning that's not engaged in building the kingdom of God. That's your mission all through the scripture. And it doesn't mean that it's got to happen here in Cornerstone. It happens in your neighborhoods, your jobs, your schools, and your places of employment. 
But you've got to develop leaders. You've got to mobilize laborers. And thirdly, listen, there's never been, never, a solo church that's built the kingdom of God. It's not supposed to work that way. Jealous, zealous, territorial churches have got to drop their walls and link hands. And that's what we're working to do. You've got to develop partnerships with other churches. But that doesn't mean any church. I had somebody recently come into my office. I think I've shared this in the Elijah series. By the way, when I shared that, I had somebody come down to me right afterwards and said, I really don't agree with that. I'm not seeing him back here since. But I'm going to tell you how convicted I am. This person came into my office, pastor of a church, and said, hey, I'd like to have you involved with me and start a start an interfaith clergy group, meaning that lots of different religions, from Muslim to Jews to pastors, those in the Baha'i religion, all sorts of religions, the leaders get together and we begin working together and, and making a difference in Easton. And I said, why would you want to do that? You are in an evangelical denomination. We're not linking hands with anybody that's not going to exalt Jesus Christ and preach his word. You want me to link hands with you with another person who preaches against Christ? Why would I do that? We develop partnerships with churches and organizations that want to exalt Christ and want to preach His Word. It's the power of this preached gospel and the demonstrated gospel that begins to change a community. One local pastor asked Pastor Tim Van Summeren after he preached, what's the gospel? You said something about the gospel. I don't, even, I'm never, I don't know what that is. That's a pastor of a church. You don't link hands with every church. You don't link hands with every pastor. But when you're Christ-exalting, Bible-based, Bible-centered, we're ready to partner. And friends, broken walls are all around us. And we need leaders to organize. We need laborers to serve. We need to strengthen each other's hands. We need to focus our eyes. In short, we all need to rise up and begin building. So where better to look? Then the book of Nehemiah. By the way, do you know this? If you're, if you're coming to this church thinking you're in a safe church doing business as usual, I'm going to have to break the news to you. You're in a really dangerous church. Because we're doing a lot of things that no other churches are doing in this area. We're doing multi-siting. Multi-siting is, Lord willing, going to launch later this year when you do one church that meets in more than one location. And in order to prepare for multi-siting, we've already bought the building downtown. We've had the building for two years now. We're taking the, the parsonage right next to it, and we're going to start rehab in about a month, total reconstruction. And that parsonage is going to be built into a Christ-centered counseling center and a life skills training center for all the people coming to the Riverside Ministry on Monday evenings. Not a lot of churches putting a quarter million dollars into those types of buildings and those types of ministries. Today we're voting on three of the four positions that we've gotten permission from the congregation to staff. We're adding staffing by four people in this economy. Are you crazy? It's faith. We're trusting the Lord to bring the people that need to be here to lead us, to prepare us for a successful multi-site launch. 
You're not in a safe church. But you are in a church that's committed to walk by faith and to get out of the walls of this, of this church and into the community. How do we do it? Well, let me introduce you now. I, I'm pretty sure most of my negativity is done. You can breathe now, okay? You can love me again. We're going to get into Nehemiah. Who is Nehemiah? Let's look first, Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 1, the person of Nehemiah. Here's what it says. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now, let me get you to pause because I want to demonstrate to you, I think, how you ought to study the Bible. And I can say this because we're not 50 years ago when nobody had access to the resources. Everything that I'm going to preach to you this morning by design is on the Internet. Everything. You have full access to it. And how often do you read words like this, the words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah, and your brain has not even registered the significance of that statement? Who is Nehemiah? Why does Nehemiah tell us who his father was? Well, I think there's a whole world of meaning in this, and there's a lot that we can dig out. Names are important. Names were extremely important in biblical times. My name, Timothy, means one who honors God. My wife's name, Denise, quite simply means one who has a wonderful husband. Okay, that was a joke. <laughs> Am I close at all? No. Okay, she's not even able to answer. She's so stunned by that truth. Okay, her name, her name really means a derivative of the Greek god Dionysus, but that's so pagan. She's a heretic. I had to come up with something better. Names were important. And in biblical times, did you know this? That the fathers named their children on the eighth day. Why did they wait eight days? Well, part of it is logistics. They got to have time for the family to travel and to commemorate and celebrate the birth of their babies. So that's part of it. But listen, there's a whole nother part of this. And this now opens up for us the world of naming in the Bible. You look for physical traits. You look for personality traits in that baby. You look for the events that surrounded the times of that baby baby's birth and then you begin naming your child after something significant like that so you've got names that mean things they're significant so let's start with nehemiah's father since he was born first nehemiah's father is hakaliah and the name Hakaliah means wait for Yahweh. Now, we might not think that that's that significant, but let me bring you now into a little bit of the context. Now, look at me while I explain this to you, because this is really interesting. Hakaliah is in Persia. He's not in Jerusalem. He's in Persia, friends, because he's in exile. He's in exile because the Jews were overrun, which I'm going to explain to you in a minute, by Babylon originally, and he was transported, he and his forefathers transported up to the land that he finds himself in now. Do you know what it's like to be a slave? No. Do you know what it's like to be stuck in a job that you hate and you cannot get out? Getting you a little closer to it. Do you know what it's like to not be able to figure out a way to get out of your parents' home? 
Do you know what it's like to be stuck in an addiction and you hate it, but you can't figure out how to escape it? This is Hekeliah. He is in exile. He's in bondage in a land that is not his. He longs for the home that is his, for the God that he does belong to. And he says, I am waiting. His father who named him, we are waiting for Yahweh, our covenant God, to return and bring us home. That's Hakaliah. And it's significant. It reminds us that God is a God who keeps his promises to his people. He is faithful to his people. He will deliver them. So we will wait on our God. He's a man of faith. But then he names his little boy Nehemiah which means the Lord has comforted. You're sitting in exile. Listen, it was so bad in Psalm 137 that it says that when the Jews were brought to Babylon, they could not even sing songs. Their hearts were so steeped in grief, they took their harps and their lyres and they hung them on the poplar trees. That's how devastatingly grieving it was to be in Babylon. And we're going to wait for our covenantal God. And then he has a baby and he has a baby and he names that little boy on the eighth day, Nehemiah. And he says in Nehemiah, through Nehemiah, the Lord has comforted who? Likely him and his wife. So likely one level of this is that even sitting in bondage, even sitting in exile, even among a people that are not our own, even among the pagan world that we live in, that we're immersed in, God has given us a baby to bring comfort to our souls. But there's another layer here. It's a much better application that goes beyond Hakaliah and his wife, is that God is raising up a man whose name is Nehemiah and through whom he will bring comfort back to his people. You see, Nehemiah's faith in God, as we go through this series, you're going to see it, it's contagious. And God, through Nehemiah, would later do what he did through Barnabas, the Barnabas, who was an encourager. He would encourage and he would comfort the residents of Jerusalem. And it's actually, I think, worth taking a time to pause. And let's pull ourselves into this story for a moment. Quite honestly, brothers and sisters, are you people that God can use to encourage, comfort, and console those who are struggling with broken walls? When you see somebody's life that is in rubble and ruin, do you immediately think, well, they deserve it, look what they've done? Or does God have somebody that says, I can bring help to that person. I can bring comfort and encouragement to that person. My faith can be injected into that person. And I can walk with that person. And I can bring the word of God to bear to that person. And I will stay with that person. And I will stroke their struggling faith along until it finally goes back into flame and back into vitality. God, you can use me. Let me be a Nehemiah to that family, to that person. Are you a Nehemiah? 
Well, that's not what my name means, Pastor Tim. Of course I'm not. What? That is what your name means because you've been given Christ. Christ lives in you. And what we hear in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, Blessed be the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all of our affliction. Why? So that, you got to underline that, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. Listen, have you had your children rebel? Do you have your children not walking with God? Do you know part of that is so that you can learn experientially the dependency and the faithfulness of Yahweh who keeps his promises, who will turn their hearts back. Some of you don't believe that anymore. Your faith is struggling. Trust your God. Bring their hearts back because he's a covenantal God who deals in covenantal families. Maybe your faith could be injected into the struggling faith of those who don't believe that. Craig Shearer was back among our group last night, Saturday night worship, went through a massive heart surgery. Craig can now comfort and bring consolation to people that never before he could. John Piccioni was here last night, going through his, starting his sixth round of chemotherapy. John now is a vehicle of comfort that God can bring through his life into the lives of those who are struggling with cancer, struggling with hearing the doctors say, you've got a year left to live. Can you imagine how cataclysmic that is in your life? Paul, you can, because your sister's struggling in that. Are you a Nehemiah through whom God can comfort his people. That's what Nehemiah was. Listen, when your walls are down, friends, I'm telling you, open your eyes because God's sending you a Nehemiah. When I was in college, my first year, my life was so far from God, my walls were in rubble. I grew up a Christian since age four. I so far walked away from God. Vines came, cracks appeared, holes settled. The wall began to crumble. I'd go to church Sunday mornings. I had to. My dad was the elder. Started the church with three other men. I'd go to church Sunday morning and have to tell dad, dad, I got to go to the bathroom. I'd go there to throw up because I had a hangover. I went to college like that. I knew my life was getting so bad. The alarm bells were going off in my mind. I knew I better get away from here. I can't seem to stop. So I went to Liberty University nine hours away thinking that's missionary dating to your college, that your college is going to rescue you. And I hated it my first year. My second year, after God stripped away all of my friends, I went back to Liberty and I met the first day back a guy that would become my Nehemiah, Mike Redman. Mike Redman injected faith back into my wobbling soul. God sent him to me to bring me back to God. Listen, your walls are in ruin. God has a Nehemiah coming your way. Listen for him and look for him. He's coming. That's the person of Nehemiah. He was a comforter. He was a consoler through whom God could comfort his people. But what are the times? The times of Nehemiah. Look at verse 1 again. 
Now it happened in the month of Kislev in the 20th year as I was in Susa, the capital. Now it happened brings some suspense, right? Well, what happened? We're going to learn what it is in a little bit. But we're going to learn first that there's a month. The month is Kislev. That is very precise information. This is a historical book. It's fact. In fact, let me, let me take a diversion just to tell you this. You need to know this. Chapters 1 through 7 of Nehemiah. They're the diary entries of Nehemiah. Chapters 8 through the rest of the book, 13. Ezra the scribe, the priest, picks up and chronicles what God did through Nehemiah. The first seven chapters, Ezra took all of his entries and formulated a book. In fact, listen, the books Ezra and Nehemiah were originally one book. Nehemiah used to be called Second Ezra. It was parsed out by the Latin Vulgate into Nehemiah. So now we've got the book of Nehemiah and, ne- and, and Ezra. Ezra occurred first. But originally it was all one. You need to know that. There's a symbiotic, interchanging relationship between the two books. They're all all happening about the same time. And so now we find it's the month of Kislev. Well, when is that? Well, that's late November and December. So it's the winter in Persia. And in the winter of Persia, the king would go to his winter residence, which was the capital city, Susa, or Shushan. It was called both in the scriptures. So the king is in Susa, and Nehemiah works for the king. So Nehemiah is in the capital, Susa. And the day is the 20th year. Well, the 20th year of what? Of captivity? No, they've been in captivity for, for a long time. It's the 20th year since King Artaxerxes I. There's three Artaxerxes since the first one came on the throne. It's in the 20th year of the king of Persia's reign. And that word, that phrase 20th year allows us to date specifically all of the events that are happening in Nehemiah. It's 446 BC when Nehemiah 1 1 occurs. He's going to go back to Jerusalem in 445. But let's begin. What happened to bring the Jews to this place? Now here, I warned you, right? Because I'm a kind pastor. I warned you that some of this is going to be a little historical. Here's, you thought maybe I'd been doing that all along? Now that was the fun part. This actually is the fun part for me. I'm going to try to make it interesting. We're going to go fast. You ready? King Solomon was the king of the Jews when the when Israel was at her height of glory, the queen of Sheba and kings from all over the world came to visit to see the splendor and the glory of Solomon in Jerusalem. But Solomon strayed from God. He became unfaithful and God says, I'm going to divide your kingdom, Solomon, but not in your life because I'm going to honor my covenant with your father. I'm going to divide the kingdom after you die. And he does. Solomon's son takes the throne. He listens to young men rather than old men takes their counsel rather than what he should have taken and he erupts a civil war and Israel which was 12 tribes unified in the land of promise Israel divides in civil war and now you've got the northern kingdom and you've got the southern kingdom 10 tribes go to the north two tribes where Jerusalem is go to the south and now in the northern kingdom you've got king after king after king with no break all they are 
are, are wicked and evil, even worse than the kings before them. And God says, finally, enough is enough. It's time to discipline you. And in 722 BC, he brings the superpower of the world, Assyria, all the way down to Jerusalem and conquers the northern kingdom. Here's what, Syria, here's what Assyria does. Listen, they're brilliant. They take all the people of Israel, all the cream of the crop, and they deport them all over the province of Assyria, which was huge. And then they bring all these other people and they transplant them down into the northern kingdom of Israel. Listen, if you want to keep a nation so weak that they can't gather enough together to revolt and rebel, that's how you do it. You mix the people. Where do the Samaritans come from? That's exactly where the Samaritans came from. Half Jew people who worship lots of different gods. The southern kingdom where Jerusalem was, Judah and Benjamin, they lasted about 200 more years because, listen, the only reason is because they had on their throne more godly kings. But eventually, even Judah's kings began to slip into idolatry and unfaithfulness. And God says, again, it's time to discipline you. And now it's not Assyria that's the world superpower. They've been defeated by Babylon. And here comes Nebuchadnezzar with all of his might against the southern kingdom in three different waves starting in 605 BC, ending in 586 BC. I think that was a date. Might be off on that one. And they demolish Israel. They demolish the southern kingdom. Listen, it would have been okay if they didn't rebel again. You see, when Nebuchadnezzar came down the first time in 605, he sort of took over the ownership of the southern kingdom. But then the southern kingdom's last king says, no, we're going to rebel against Babylon. And they came back down with a vengeance and they raised the city of Jerusalem, knocked the walls down, burned the gates, demolished the temple, ruined the houses. The picture that you see in Nehemiah 1.4 is very much the picture that Babylon left. And Babylon does the same thing. They take the cream of the crop and they bring them up to Babylon and they bring other people and they resettle them into the southern kingdom. And for 70 years, 70 years, the Jews are in captivity in Babylon. Exiles. In fact, if you read the book of Daniel... The first half of the book of Daniel, Babylon is the superpower. Halfway through, Babylon gets defeated by none other than Persia. That's Nehemiah's time. Now Persia is the superpower. And that is a fascinating story in history. Maybe I'll weave it into this series. And then all of a sudden, the throne, who's on the throne of Persia is really kind of a nice guy. He's not a, he's not a believer in Yahweh. But a hundred or so years before he even was born, God said, by name, there's going to be a guy named King Cyrus, and he's going to let my people go. That's exactly what we see happening. Cyrus comes to the throne in 580, or 5, when was it? I think I've got the chart up there. Comes to the throne, and he says to the Jews living in Persia, if you want to go back home, you can go back home. And two years later, they organized the first of three return trips to Jerusalem. This time, it's led by Zerubbabel, the governor, and Joshua, the high priest. 
And their job, their task, is to go back and rebuild the temple. And they begin to rebuild the temple. And if you go to the book of Haggai and Zechariah, then you're going to find the deep, deep discouragement settled in for two reasons. Number one, all the older people who used to know who were alive when the first temple was built saw how small and inferior the temple that they were rebuilding was. And they sat down and wept and the progress came to a halt. But there was one other thing that happened that even was more of an obstacle. And you're going to see this in Nehemiah. The, enemy, the people all around the Jews hated God. And they hated the Jews. And they fired off letters to the king of Persia saying that this is a rebellious people. If you allow them to rebuild their temple, they're going to rebel, they're going to revolt, and you're going to have a war on your hand. And the king sent a letter back and said, by force, make them stop. And they did. Then God raises up Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the prophet and says to his people, listen, people of God, trust your God. He sent you back here to rebuild this temple. Have no fear. Your God is the supreme sovereign ruler of the universe. Start building. And they do. And then the king of Persia searches the archives, finds that Cyrus did write a mandate to send the Jews back, gave them monies to rebuild the temple. What they were doing was lawful. What they were doing was legal. And he didn't have the power to change it. So he sent another letter back and said to the enemies all around, you even think of interfering, I'm going to pull a beam out of your house and I'm going to impale you on it. That's pretty stout words. And the temple progress occurs and they finish the temple four years later in 516 B.C. Now you've got to see something. This is really interesting. Listen, the temple is operational. They're worshiping their God. Yet their walls are in ruin. Do you know how metaphorical that is for so many of us? You come to church. You're a Christian. You worship. I personally know a lot of our stories here in this church, and there are many I don't. But I know, how, I know there's a lot of us whose walls are in ruin. Yet you're here week after week. You are Jerusalem. The temple of God, the worship of God is alive, yet the walls are in ruin. They're piles of rubble. Nehemiah is going to encourage us to rise up and build. There's a second wave in 458 B.C. That wave now is led by Ezra. Ezra, who is a priest and scribe, and Ezra leads them back, and his job was not to rebuild the temple. That's done. His job is to revive the people. Listen, the temple's rebuilt, but the people are in ruin. He's, he's going to bring the hearts of the people back to God. And this is about 80 years, listen, 80 years after the temple was rebuilt. The temple's rebuilt, and for 80 more years, the city's in ruins, and the walls are piles of rubble. And then after Ezra brings that second wave in 445 B.C., our time in Nehemiah, Nehemiah is going to lead the third wave back. He will become their governor. And the first half of the book of Nehemiah is all about the rebuilding of the city, all about the rebuilding the walls. But the second half of Nehemiah is all about the revival of the people. Now here's an interesting footnote as I come to a close. You know what the last book of the Old Testament is, right? That's Malachi. 
But did you know that the second to last book of the Bible is Nehemiah? Chronologically. Listen, it's not put in chronological order in our Bibles. It's not meant to be in chronological order, and neither are a lot of the books. It's put before Psalms. This is a historical book that links it with Ezra, links it with Esther, which brings it into first and or brings it into the Kings and Samuel and Chronicles historical accounts. But Nehemiah is the second to last book in Old Testament times, which should clue you in that God is about to go silent for 400 years because the people of God are unfaithful, unrelentingly so. We're going to study Nehemiah to see how to rebuild broken walls and revive God's people. Both in our own lives, as well as the communities God has placed us within. So let me ask you as I close, honestly, are your walls in ruin? Let me just ask some pointing questions. What's your marriage like right now? Be honest. Your marital walls are always before me, God says. I know what your marriage is like. And I'm sending Nehemiahs to rebuild it. Because you've not tended to the vines. And the cracks have appeared. And the walls are starting to crumble. What's your marriage like? Let me ask you, men especially, ladies, you're not exempt. How are you using the internet? I think I could tell you pretty safely, accurately, this is the raging problem in our church among men. Constantly talking to men who cannot stop looking at porn. And I believe almost all of you are Christians. I had one man tell me he's addicted to porn and wasn't bothered by it. There's nothing I can do for him. His walls are broken because there's no revived temple in his heart. There's no worship of God. For a lot of you, though, there is the worship of God, and yet you're in an addiction that you hate. I know you hate it. And you don't know how to get out of it. You've tried countless times. It might have been successful for a month, and all sooner or later, the hooks are back in you and pulls you right back in. That wall is all before God. He is sending his Nehemiahs to help. How's your finances? You tasted deeply the shackles of debt? And make your life miserable. Your financial walls are always before God's eyes. And he's ready to rebuild. I could go on and on and on, and we will throughout this series. Are your walls in ruin before the eyes of God? Here comes Nehemiah. So let's get ready to rise up and build. Lord, thank you for your word Thank you for Nehemiah. God, we're going to learn so much. Lord, thank you. Comfort us. Console us through this study. Strengthen our hands. Give us a mind to work. Let us be astounding in how much we can accomplish when you are working in us and through us. Bring Nehemiahs to us. Let us be Nehemiahs to others. And we ask for your help in Jesus' name. Amen.